0: Family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live! Come on, be human and give, give, give! <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human! Aho!
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Granthi, your host, and we look forward to some dynamic, unconventional, unpredictable, and improvisational conversation. Among the topics will be one that I know you followed closely, the 2018 World Ventriloquist Convention. How warlike is the United States? Even more than you think. And how do marketers get into our subconscious? We'll look at some of their clever and rather demonic techniques. We'll also take a look at the beauty and sickness of baseball rivalries and Other surprises as well. Helping us with the conversation, our illustrious co-host, she is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, Victoria Sullivan. That's good because it means we'll get a great poem a little bit later on. Also helping in the dialogue is Radio Woodstock weekend on-air warrior, Ron Van Warmer, who will also be at the switchboard, seeing if we can control how... And keep this show on the air. We promise some surprises, maybe a few insights, definitely a few laughs. And we will open up the Woodstock Roundtable Musical Jukebox. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. (laughs) Let's do this again. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. We're in the dog days of summer. Yes, we Mm. are. And, And a little too much rain. Yeah, but it was dry for a long time, so I'm glad we had. But now let's calm everything down, and uh, we're into beach mode, even when we don't live at the beach. We're into the
2: real summertime. I'm afraid I'm going to get locked out of my house because the doors have swollen so mm. much. Every time I come home, and if it's unlocked, I have to pound my way in.
1: Yeah, it's
0: getting Among, that way. As if
2: we don't have enough to worry about, now we have swollen door syndrome. <laughs> exactly. Good grief! And drawers of my bureau, I can't get open. There's whole quantities of clothes. How come there's I can't no wear. app for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, uh,
1: come I on, have. computers! You're supposed to be so intelligent. Figure out how to stop the swelling of our doors and drawers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a poet.
1: My drawers are swollen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
2: that could bump. mean many things.
1: <laughs> yes. That could be a good bumper sticker. <laughs> it could. Yes. Are yours? Well, speaking of the dog days of summer. Um, I have a couple articles that I have to start with, even though they're going to get me on a rant. I wanted to start with the National or the World Ventriloquist Convention, because what could be more fun than that? right?
2: And <laughs> only for 20 minutes.
1: <laughs> well, not even 20, but it will get me to do a soliloquy about someone who is very important in my childhood, because I was a TV baby. you know, baby boomers were, a lot of us were placed in front of that TV. Uh, I was the first TV generation. And I got addicted pretty quickly. and But one of the great performers is was a ventriloquist. And we're going to get into him because he may hold the record. This is subjective. He may hold the record for having excelled at two professions, which couldn't be more diametrically
2: opposed. Car mechanic?
1: Hmm. Well, 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 I'll give you a chance. <laughs> I will state what he did. And I'll give you both a chance to come up, or even our listeners to call in with someone who was excelled at two professions that were more disparate hmm. Hmm. than Paul Winchell. But we'll get to that a little later on because I have to get on my soapbox and have a little rant here. Yeah. How well, unusual. Article <laughs> article in today's New York Times really got me angry. Now, we've talked before about the obesity issue here. It's not an issue. The obesity, it, it's, a, it's an epidemic in the United States. We are fat. In many ways. Mm -hmm. And the statistic to me that of all the statistics, I did a big article for this for the Trends Journal months ago and I got into the research, which was both amazingly entertaining and really depressing at the same time. Uh, Every state in the United States, because we like to think, well, the obesity is worse, like in those states that are. More economically deprived, Mississippi, mm, or less culturally advanced. Wrong. Hmm. Listen to this stat: Every state in the United States has over 25 percent of its population obese. Wow, that's not overweight, obese. That's a quarter. every state has over 25 mm-hmm. percent of its wow. population obese. Okay, now that's bad enough. But while I I feel sorry for children. Mm-hmm. of adults who don't know better when kids don't know better and get them into these horrible eating habits, which then you have obese kids. Adults, at least we have the capacity to be responsible for our own behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's sad to see. Um, by the way, it's also one of the reasons we're never going to have real a, 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 a successful health system in the United States. You can't have a health system succeed when you have over 25% of the population obese. Because that obesity leads to all diseases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: And there's also been studies that if the people around you are overweight, you're likely to be overweight. So it's a kind of a catch-22. You can't take that 25% Mm -hmm. down because in their neighborhoods where they're more than 25%, everyone is like that. So it looks normal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's bad enough. But that doesn't get me
1: irate <laughs> okay? <laughs> because there's a little bit, I wish there was a little more George Carlin in me because George could sit back and say, I'm just entertained by all this lunacy. Mm. I'm somewhat entertained by it, but it still gets me ticked off. I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah. But this, this part, which is a, um, what's the proper word? You, you're, you're an English major. It's an <laughs> adjunct of it. It's a result, not a result. Consequence. But consequence. Thank you. Thank God you're Thank here. Thank you for being here. <laughs> it would have been the next hour and 50 minutes of me trying to come up with that word. Uh, the con- One consequence of adults being obese, this is the part that doesn't get me as irate as this. Now we've got our pets obese. Oh, mm. right, right. That ticks me off. <laughs> you never had a fat dog? The Association for, Bet- for Pet Obesity Prevention. Mm-hmm. We have to have an association for this. Right. Estimates that in the United States, veterinarians now classify more than 100 million
2: dogs and cats as obese. Well, you know, I had a brother-in-law and he was feeding his dog whatever and he asked the vet about it and the vet said, oh no, don't feed them what it says on the package. Feed him half that amount. And that dog was in great shape for years. It was never obese. It was a gorgeous little beagle. But they put the wrong amount to sell you more dog food. So they say like two cups when really your dog would be fine with one cup.
1: Welcome to our culture. (laughs) We are fat in so many ways because we've taken a brilliant system, capitalism, and we've turned it into – more is better, no matter what
2: the consequences. Right. And the dogs are happy to get a lot of food, although they can't well, walk after Well, but they're not. They're happy they to they get are. the
1: food. But now the problem is, with all these obese animals, is they're getting more liver disease, mm-hmm. more heart disease, more all sorts of problems.
2: And cancer. A lot of dogs get mm-hmm. cancer
1: now. Mm. And we think it's cute when the dog is overweight. Mm. <laughs> I don't think so. No, but a lot of people do. Yeah.
2: Well, they also feed them off the table. Or they just can't resist giving Fido a little bit of their meal.
1: Uh, let's see what we got here. Overweight dogs, really, let's see, they develop diabetes. Um, large breeds often face joint injuries from excess weight. The smaller ones, smaller dogs, have breathing difficulties. Their airway, their airways collapse. Mm. Along with diabetes and arthritis, extra heft puts pets at Increased risk for liver and kidney disease, high blood pressure, heart failure, even some cancers. Um, At least one widely cited study in Labrador retrievers found even moderately overweight dogs have shorter lifespans than their lean counterparts. So it's bad enough that we don't, that we have hundreds of millions of people around the world who are starving, right? It's bad enough that we have obesity all over the place. Now we're getting our pets fat, and some
2: people probably don't exercise them enough.
0: Well, how many cats get exercise? I mean, you'd think that every cat would be fat. <laughs> they lie around all day and they and and eat and they don't do exercise.
2: I got a wind up sushi for a cat I know, and I wind it up, and the little sushi runs around the floor, and the cat goes <laughs> and bats it. So that's, they, yeah. <laughs> that, that's like a, that's a feline gym. That is. <laughs> oh man I, I can't take it anymore <laughs> uh. It is sad because you know the the pets can't rule themselves and right. and they but you know if the owner's overweight, they're probably not surprised if they're they're but it's not just owners overweight.
1: overweight it's not just overweight owners who are getting their dogs overweight it's again, it's like you say we're you know we were given brains we're supposed to develop them. Obviously, marketers, their job, in a more enlightened culture, we're not there yet, we're not close, but in an enlightened culture, advertisers realize we can make fine profits without getting everybody overweight. But that's not how it works. More is better. The bottom. You don't succeed as a CEO or, 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 or an executive in a company if you're just making nice profits. You have to make more and more profits or the stockholders are on your ass, okay? Um, so uh, more is better. You got to keep selling more. How do you sell more dog food? Get people to, f- to overfeed their dogs and And, their and cats. put it right on yeah. the
2: package. This is what you give a this size dog and the, and the guy just said, "No. You give it half of what they tell you."
1: So, and then they'll put you know, they'll put a doctor or a veterinarian on the commercial and they're not even a doctor or veterinarian. <laughs> right. They're an actor <laughs> in a white coat. Which is actually <laughs> less actually think about it. Which is worse? We're into cynicism now. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I'm going to get off it. We're going to talk about ventriloquism. Yeah, We're going to have a like lot of you. fun. like you. usually very
2: positive. I know.
1: I'm very cynical today, this morning. Uh, I can't take it when I... When, when, as I said, I can deal with humans overeating and getting diseases and dying. I can deal with that. Okay. I can't deal with them getting their dogs and cats fat. I can't deal with that part of it. But um, you got me off my rant. That's good. Uh, the... The issue is that in addition to the fact uh, that, oh, I know, which is worse, right? The fact that an advertiser will put an actor posing as a doctor to say to feed feed your dog this much, is it worse than that? Or actually the fact that a real veterinarian and real doctors will take the money to go on the air and spout this unhealthy Mm. information? Which is worse?
2: I think they talk themselves into that it isn't unhealthy. I think most of these people who give you bad advice have deluded themselves that it's good advice.
0: Or maybe they haven't done the research.
2: Right. They're, they're careless, they're sloppy, whatever. But they, they actually. That's a, I, that's a very interesting point. And I think
1: I, that sounds right. I, th- I mean, obviously, some are just cynical. They know better, but they'll take the money. And we're all, let's, let's be honest about it, we're all susceptible to that, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the fact is that they do, that you can talk yourself into it. Yeah. You can talk yourself into
2: lies. You know what's weird to me when you're talking about these spokesmen is the actors who are doing really well and making a whole lot of money, and then they're also doing ads. And you say, why is that? Yeah. Uh, The worst one is Tom Selleck on this thing about reverse mortgages, because he walks out looking just like he is in Blue Bloods, and they actually make the set look like it. So you think it's the police chief of New York telling you that as an older person, you really want to look into these reverse mortgages. I've done my (laughs) homework, and they, they, they look good to me. And you're like. Tom Selleck, you have so much money.
0: I've always had a problem with actors that are working and making a lot of money doing ads as well. When there are so many actors that aren't making a lot of money (laughs) who could be making those ads and making a little extra money instead of paying the Actor who's got millions of dollars, millions more, right to be your spokesperson, yeah,
2: it's unclear why they do it because, yeah, because they have celebrity that money well, the, you why the company wants it is because they're a celebrity people. Why does the celebrity want to
0: do it? I think a lot of times it's because they're afraid they're not going to work, you know, they're actors. <laughs> So no matter how much you have, yeah, you're always afraid of that. Have, yeah, I,
2: yeah nah, but you that, know what? They I'm have not, residuals. Anyone who has a show that was popular, yeah. it is on forever. And they are getting a check every month. Uh, the, the The union is very strong. I the, mean, the look, film look not union. all artists and actors or artists are like that. Look,
1: the Beatles famously, for a good decade under all that pressure, would not allow that's their true. songs to be used in advertising. Yeah, a lot of artists Others used to artists do that. did. Um, then, of course... I still can't figure out. Well, now we're off the subject. We'll get to the Beatles (laughs) later because we're going to, but so I'm still on my soapbox because not only am I angry that we're getting our pets fat Mm -hmm. and unhealthy, I grew up in a house that loved sports. My father loved sports. So I developed a love of sports as a young kid. And I think that's a healthy thing. Um, Sports is a very important, uh, positive part of my life. And I get it. That a lot of sports is really a metaphor for war, but that in a, in a healthy sense, in other words, um, uh, kill better, them, take them down. Better that we do Eat battle them. on the football field or the baseball diamond than on the military field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I get that. Now, I've never been as big a fan of football as most of my friends are because I find it too warlike, and and it just, I mean, I love what I love about sports is there's an aesthetic to it, Mm -hmm. and there is a physical brilliance to it Mm -hmm. um, that I love. One of my favorite things to see on TV, I'm not a, ESPN is like most things in our culture, has gotten so over the top, it's almost unwatchable. But one thing they do that I love are like the top 10 plays of the day, Mm -hmm. or they'll do the vote sometimes, they'll, at the end of the year, the top 10 plays of the year from all sports around the world. And it's and you can YouTube this stuff, and it's just wonderful to watch human beings be able to perform at a, at a certain level in sports. I've always loved that, so I put up with all the warlike <laughs> metaphors and all that stuff. Right? I'm not naive about sports. I played sports at a professional, you know, tennis at a professional level. I get it. I get competition. I get that it's rough. I guess get that it's warlike, but. I got so angry this morning because, all right, I'm, my father grew up in Brooklyn. He was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. In the 1950s, as I'm growing up, you start to learn that if you're a Dodger fan, you get used to being disappointed because <laughs> while they were always one of the best teams in the league and they often would get to the World Series, and Gus is here who grew up in Brooklyn and knew this, they would always lose to the Yankees. <laughs>
2: And so, I was a Yankees fan at the same time as you were lamenting. So part of my upbringing is learning to hate the Yankees Aww. because they were so damn good.
1: Ah. They were always better than the Dodgers. And, of course, the wonderful thing about being the underdog every year, even though it hurts to lose almost all the time, is the, the, the moment when you win, it's almost more gratifying than a, than a Yankee fan's. Ryan, right because yankees get used to winning and 1955 I'm 5 years old I can remember just the euphoria i didn't understand all of it when the dodgers finally beat the yankees in 7 games in in the world series it was like the renaissance had happened uh-huh. <laughs> you know it's,
0: a, right? it's like
1: the miracle oh,
0: man. Oh, yes. you
3: remember 55 right. well i actually had the front of the daily news i pinned it on a wall and it said we we're not bums you know <laughs> <back
2: there.
1: Right. laughs> dem bums <Yes. laughs> they were called the bums here they were clearly one of the top three or four teams in baseball oh, yeah. every year but they were called bums because they couldn't beat the yankees
3: yeah. yeah right
1: and how did you feel when they went to la
3: Oh, that was that was the end of baseball actually. We'll <laughs> the end baseball of baseball, is now. that was the end of
1: life as <laughs> yeah. we knew it. Yeah. Betrayal. Betrayal. Yeah. yeah. Right. That so I get why sports are important and and this and that. But and I've now we're gonna get to the New York Post, which is kind of a um what they used to call red journalism. It's one of those newspapers that loves to put up fiery headlines mm-hmm. and loves to get up people emotional and stirred up. And it's become a fairly politically conservative magazine. Now it's owned by Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. owns it. But they've always, since I'm a kid, the New York Post has always had a great sports section. They really get good sports journalists. And yes, it's a little bit of flag waving and all that stuff, and it's hyped up, and it's um, but it's really well done. They get good writers. Mm. So... I root for the Red Sox when they play the Yankees because the Yankees-Red Sox is one of the great... It's a better rivalry now than what used to be it was the Yankees and Dodgers because they were in the same city. Now, the Yankees' best rivalry is with the Boston Red Sox. and This has been going on for decades. Right. So here they are, the two best teams, two of the three best teams in Major League Baseball, big series, and the Red Sox are just wiping them out. And there's a part of me that likes that, (laughs) even though I like the Yankees more than I did as a kid. As a kid, you had to hate the Yankees because they always beat your Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. Right? (laughs) Brooklyn Dodgers were like our family. Someone was beating up on our family. (laughs) Oh, wow.
3: No, that's how it was taken. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Right? Gus, am I wrong? No, you're right. In fact, when they won, what they used to do is what they did in Brooklyn because we had these lampposts, you know, they would actually hang dummies up there, like Yankee dummies, and they would mm, just hang from right. the lampposts. I mean,
1: yeah, I close. mean it was, but it was it was, you know, it was it was vicious, but it was also good natured fun, and we also oh, yeah. understood that, you know, it was sports. Okay, get was, over it. You know, at the same time that we couldn't get over it, we could get over it.
2: When I was in grade school, a kid accused me of being crass because I was a Yankees fan. So I guess he was a Dodgers fan. <laughs> And, 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 Wait a and, minute, in grade school, in grade someone school, knew the word crass? Yes, he, he said that, <laughs> that to, root, high to root for the Yankees was crass.
1: If someone used that word in your high school, Gus, <laughs> no, they
3: would have gotten beat up. First of all, it wouldn't be a CR in front of it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That always stuck with me that that kid said that. You know, like I, it opened my eyes. I mean, really? Because um, I would I would knock the Dodgers, of course.
1: See, that's the problem. You grew up in Westchester. So you have,
2: you, uh, Westchester
1: people are crass. In Brooklyn, yeah. you'd get your crass kicked if you use that word, Absolutely. to use your term, right? no doubt.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: So, so anyway, here I am. I don't hate the Yankees the way I used to, but I root for the Red Sox against the Yankees. I can't help it. It's in my genes, right? So this morning, after reading through the New York Times, I wanted to go to the New York Post webpage because I knew that they would be apoplectic, that the Yankee beat writer would be apoplectic, that the Yankees are getting their crass kick by Boston, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading That's this good. thing, and here's—and he's a good journalist, Mike Vaccaro, but here's what he says at the end, and by the way, he's speaking to what most sports fans would agree with. And to me, it's every bit, it makes me every bit as cynical as the fact that we overfeed our dogs and cats to get them unhealthy and obese. Here's what he says. <laughs> so I get that Yankee fans are apoplectic. I get it because as a Brooklyn Dodger fan, as a kid, I was so crushed when they lost to the Yankees. So I get that Yankee fans are upset that they're losing to the Boston Red Sox. But here's what the journalist says. First, he, he's like sober and he says, look, we have to understand something. The Yankees are a great team this year. They're 30 games over 500. They're going to make the playoffs. Boston just happens to be better right now. Get over it. That's his first point. His second point is that the Yankees are going to make the playoffs, and they'll probably have a chance to get the Red Sox again. So get your act together. That's rational, sober, intelligent, right? (laughs) Here's his third point. Between now and the first week of October, when we get to the playoffs, the Yankees have to figure a few things out about themselves, specifically about how they perform when they're on the same field as the Red Sox. So far, so good. (laughs) Which means there is very little of substance that will change between now and then. The only thing that matters is how you play in October. How to do that? Well, for starters, the Yankees could stop looking so passive The Red Sox are playing with far more joy, more fire, more energy. And that translates into crisper, cleaner, more successful performances. So far, very intelligent. Get ready. (laughs) (laughs) You know what would be nice? An incident would be nice. No, we're not calling for a headhunt. We're not calling for anyone to spike anyone else onto the disabled list. We're not looking for blood and guts. But would it hurt anyone if, say, there was a hard, clean slide at the plate and if some hard words were exchanged and guys came running out of the dugout and flying in from the bullpen, mostly to pose, mostly to point, while everyone at Fenway Park starts screaming? He's, it's, sorry, he can try to blunt it. He's calling for the Yankees to do something nasty
2: and get a fight going. Yeah. in order to get them juiced up, right? right? That is what he's saying, although he does it in a pretty tempered way. Well,
1: but that's what he's saying. And that's, right. you know, that's your best response. <laughs> and that's the response people have. What I get it. I understand I'm a vast minority. <clears throat> I still root for teams, but not as heavily, because I don't like myself when I'm rooting for a team. I don't. Mm. I want. I would like to be more enlightened, and I would like to watch a game and see excellence and see human beings doing physical things of great and amazing talent under pressure. Um, that's what I really love about sports. And that gets lost a lot of times in the fact that, you know, them's fighting words and we got to be more warlike. And we, it's just it's the only way we know how to respond. We yeah. always pick a
0: side. We always pick a side. I mean, if it's two tennis players, you pick the one that
2: you prefer. Otherwise, you're not interested. That's what I find. I mean, I I always root in the Super Bowl, and sometimes I barely know the teams. But as it gets close... I try and figure out which one I like better and why. Because it's not fun to watch the game if I you're root, not rooting I for root someone. I root for the
0: team that I'm – if the person that I'm with has a favorite team, that's the team <laughs> I go with.
2: I could do that.
0: Because I don't have any preference whatsoever. I
2: also, <laughs> so. I also like the underdog. If, if, if someone is saying this team isn't going to make it and they're the underdog – but they're, they're playing in the Super Bowl, so they're obviously good. Then I'll always root for the underdog if mm-hmm. I don't know the teams because I kind of like that idea that they might come out, you know, like chariots halfway of th- fire and, you know, a, a big sound score will go off in my head. Like I love sports movies and they're the only movies and it's so weird that I cry in. <laughs> I, I I never cry on the movies. So now that you found the, old, you thought old Yeller was hysterical when the dog got I it, there. it do, I do but not sports cry. Sports m-
1: movies you cry
2: because there's uh, that thing of someone overcoming odds. I mean they don't make sports movies about teams that always win. You know, it's the little guys. It's the no, runner who's I mean, it's, overcoming it's story, uh, right. something. Yeah. And when I see them going over that finish line, right. the tears are coming to my face. I'm thinking, oh, cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> because
1: no, I get it. I get it. It's Sometimes a, during the <laughs> Super Bowl,
0: I'll, I'll switch teams midway because one team is winning and the other is <laughs> oh, so going, <laughs> okay, That's I want sure. them to win now. <laughs>
1: You are, that's the most un-American thing I've ever heard. Well, yeah. he did go to school in Britain for many years. Well, it shows. Well. You know. <laughs> Although in England,
2: you got the fields of eating. You get all those prep school kids who you, can't wait to beat each other You know what's up. interesting that I'm sure you've read about, but you may not have seen like me, is to go to a high school or grade school soccer game and see the parents oh. Oh. screaming.
3: Oh, that was, a, you know, it's when I was so a kid, crazy. Like, we used to have this, this one I guy. I love that part. One <laughs> guy would come to our Sandlot games and just. You know, like, put you down all the time, you know. So I remember I'd get, I'd get up and go like, you know what, he's never going to hit it. Or you miss a ball and he goes, he needs a baker's shovel, you know. Right. Or, or, <laughs> and he did this all the way to I actually played in Ebbets Field. And he was in the stands next. <laughs>
2: was, yeah. was this a parent or another kid? No, just some other some just guy. Just adult. You know? ah, yeah. He
3: smoke like these parodies, you know, these Italian... <laughs> Things if you, if you inhaled it, your lungs were gone, you know. Like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, also the the, yeah, that was, the things we would say as kids, pitcher can't pitch, catcher can't catch. Right. You know, you know, or someone would come up to the plate and go, well, this is an easy out. Everybody move in. You know? There's a right. lot of that body right that goes on in sports. That's a good one. Take
3: two and hit to right <laughs> means like, oh boy. <laughs> You're just off the bench at that point. Right. Well, I told
1: you my favorite sports uh-huh. moment. Uh-huh. Had nothing to do with professional sports it happened to do with my grade school gym class when they made a co- it was like third grade and i 'm into baseball now baseball was the sport it yeah. isn 't anymore yeah but um now it 's basketball and football are the big bigger sports but uh that kids play um but when I was a kid every every day you were it was warm enough you were playing baseball somewhere you right. know pick up game or organized yeah. or whatever and so by third grade baseball was it collecting baseball cards watching the Dodgers lose to the Yankees you know playing ball playing catch big most important part of life right yes. so now it's third grade and it's gym <laughs> class and they decide to make it for some reason co-ed which is interesting okay so we're, we're like eight years old and the gym teacher is teaching the rules of baseball to those who didn't know it yet right I was already in organized little league and I'll use her name. Maybe she's out there somewhere. Ruthie Nuremberg. <laughs> Everyone's getting the instructions. Okay, now we start to play with softball, and Ruthie hits it and ran to third base. <laughs> oh. <laughs> to me, that was the greatest moment in sports. <laughs> I, it, it was everybody, no one knew what to say. You know, it was
2: like stunned silence. It's like, uh, no. You she know, was, no she I, was a lefty. I keep score. <laughs> I keep score every Sunday after this show for the softball game over at Andy Lee Field. I'm sorry to and hear that. Most I know. Most of the guys there are pretty good, and they certainly know the rules, and they've been played for many years. But there's a couple guys that don't. And when they get on, I'm always saying, get a first base coach, get a third base coach, because <laughs> these guys won't run at the appropriate moment, or... They they won't see that it's like a really long high you know so they can just stay on first until they see if it's caught or not and then run for second they don't there's actually a couple guys that don't know that they're like Ruthie. (laughs) <laughs> and they they won't run when they should. They and I'm there screaming, run! The other thing that they do is, you know, they they hit the ball and then they wait to see if it's caught. No, you have to run to first base because I would say at least a third of the time the fielder drops it right. or doesn't make it to it in this particular league.
3: Can you uh, say he needs a baker shovel? <laughs> <laughs>
2: But it's so much fun. I mean, you do see some wonderful skilled plays sometimes, some amazing catches, some amazing hits. You see just ridiculous bad news bears stuff, particularly in the infield where they're throwing it all around and overthrowing it, and someone gets a triple or a home run out of a, a hard throw to first base to begin with. You know, it's it's a. Uh, Let me ask you. Here's, here's
1: because uh, this is my favorite question when when guys over fifty play softball. Yes. Okay. And they're well over what, 50, some of them. right? <laughs> what are the percentages of pulled hamstrings oh, every day? Oh, you
2: know, there's, so there's the injuries. I don't know, but people have fallen down on the pitcher's <laughs> mound. You know, but actually hurt Baseball themselves. Baseball, it's
1: such a rough
0: game.
2: <laughs> and then there's people who've had like like brain injuries and they won't wear a hard hat in the <laughs> pitching. That's <laughs> <laughs> You're saying, well, are you they insane <laughs> Get off the pitcher's mound. We're not going to let you pitch. Because that's where you're really likely to get hit by a hard one in softball. It's like smack into the right. pitcher um, so you're not
1: there to keep score you're there to scream at people's I inadequacies <laughs> and root for injuries
2: <laughs> well I never root for injuries and I don't mostly scream at their inadequacies I mean I do scream if they're standing there waiting to see if the ball's going to be caught and they don't run to first that and that comes out of me in a kind of an atavistic way mm-hmm. from my childhood because I was a good athlete And when I played softball with girls in high school, a lot of them were like Ruthie. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just so depressing. We had something called the Twilight Softball League, and I finally just decided I'd rather eat dinner.
0: (laughs) 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 I feel a lot like Ruthie myself. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) clockwise or Uh, counterclockwise? (laughs) I'm not quite sure what we solved in the first half hour, (laughs) other than the fact that Um, it was
3: fun we're fat we're
1: (laughs) warlike but we still can have fun (laughs) (laughs) and we're killing our animals watching ourselves screw up and sports
2: sports are great i mean they are a great outlet these guys love it
1: yeah no i'm to say i don't know where uh, it's to me one of the most important aspects of my life has been sports it's it's great but i i'm still not horrified i'm just so angry that the best this journalist can do as you know covering the yankees mm-hmm. and being in is to say what the yankees need to do is basically start a fight right a fight. that's the only right. way they can get motivated anymore mm. you know he, he, he to tries dance. to
2: hide it by <laughs> saying something like a clean slide right, at the home base. Right. but you but know, we know what that, he's saying yes. you know you're going to take out the catcher if you can and,
0: and they're and they're clearing the bench to come out and talk
2: right yes <laughs> in a heated
1: fashion in a heated fashion we're going to take our first break and when we come back we are going to get to that World Ventriloquist Convention because how hmm. could we
2: not?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: This is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunther, your host. We have two illustrious co-hosts with us today, our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan and Weekend On Air Warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Wormer. Let's talk ventriloquism.
2: <laughs> okay, Doug.
1: Now, Without moving I'm your sitting lips, on your lap. <laughs> there is a photo that those who are listening, if you're driving a vehicle, Pull over to the side of the road. (laughs) Don't do this while you're driving. But if you're home or you're pulled over, what is the URL, uh, Ron, of this photo? Because we'd like to get some of our listeners looking at it as we look at it. It's um, vhconvention.com. V as in victory, hconvention.com. That stands for Vent Haven International Ventriloquist Convention. They have a convention every year. And they attracted, I thought they would attract, well, they attracted about 500 people and their dummies. <laughs> right. And there's oh, this. Don't say that about them. And there's this group photo, which is hysterical, of the entire group with their dummies. Isn't that a, isn't that a great photo?
0: I had a Danny O'Day when I was a kid.
2: Ah. You had a, a dummy?
0: Yes. Danny I, O'Day. Had, did, I had. What a, did he say? Anything I said. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Whatever well, give I did. an him example.
2: Say. What did he say?
0: Oh, gosh. I don't remember. Did well, he I, have a different Hello, voice? My name is Danny O'Day. <laughs> and you try to do that without moving your lips. Right. But on the radio, you can move your lips.
1: Well, I had a Jerry Mahoney. Some people ah. remember him at Paul because Paul Winchell was my hero. Right. Paul Winchell was a great ventriloquist. He had a kids' show. Yeah. Um, and his two dummies were Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. Mm. And so, one of the greatest. That would be politically incorrect
2: now. Thank
1: yes, but do uh, Jerry Mahoney?
2: No, Ma- Knucklehead. Oh, uh,
1: <laughs> I re- that was one of the greatest presents I ever got—the actual dummy. But here hmm. was the depressing part. Of course, I wanted to learn how to throw my voice. What could be more fun than throwing your own voice? And I just thought about this thought experiment. I don't think we can historians can figure this out. But imagine the first person. Who successfully threw their voice. <laughs> and how it must have scared the living crap out that of anyone. I was G-D. Who was... <laughs> From the Old Testament? He threw
2: it into the burning bush. He threw it everywhere. Good point.
1: <laughs> yeah. God was the first ventriloquist. Very good. Yeah, um, That would be a good title for a poem. <laughs> God was the first ventriloquist. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about the convention. Um, it's uh, in Erlanger, Kentucky. Ventriloquism has had a reputation for being dorky at best, sinister at worst, but now it summons up horror movies. About, there, there have been a number of movies about homicidal dummies. I'm yeah, not mm-hmm. quite sure what that tells us. I know. Where's Dr. Freud when we need him? Um, dummies and clowns. Scary. Yeah. Scary. Yeah, mm-hmm. scary. <laughs> now, we're far from the golden age of the 30s and 40s when Edgar Bergen and his puppet Charlie McCarthy were beloved. Yeah. He was huge. I loved Charlie McCarthy. On radio. McCarthy. And he was a radio ventriloquist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Remember Steve Charney? Of DST.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was here every Saturday. He was a
1: radio ventriloquist. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I would uh, pro- I would produce that show. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't bring the dummy to oh, the radios.
1: he just talked the dummy. That's cheating. <laughs> you should not have revealed that. I know. I was always I a big fan of Steve's. <laughs> I still am. Not if he didn't bring the dummy in. Well.
2: <laughs> Some days you just can't carry your dummy on your back. <laughs>
1: Well, despite the fact that often a ventriloquist dummy can can appear sinister, mm-hmm. and we've had movies of you know dummies being homicidal, um, the fact is the mood was upbeat when 525 human attendees went to the Vent Haven International Ventriloquist Convention at the Airport Holiday Inn. I love that. So you know it's mm. a high class event. Um, now, I'm going to ask you. Oh, pull this up. I am a, I am not a fan of of these TV shows like America's America's Got Talent. What are some of the other ones? Um, uh, I-
2: American Idol. American
1: Idol. I don't watch them. They're too yeah. contrived for me. But they get some talented people on, and a young woman, thirteen year old Darcy Lynn Farmer, gave was a big hit at the ventriloquist convention because she won. The 2017 edition of America's Got Talent. Wow, and they get a lot of talented people on that show. Um, and it sort of brought coolness back to ventriloquism. (laughs) Sort of, sort of. (laughs) So, could you pull up her? Because, and unfortunately, we're going to have to get a lot of the uh, the hosts and stuff. But here, let's put her on. Go about uh, here. She's 13 years old. She brings out her dummy. And of course, you want to YouTube this, she she's incredibly gifted ventriloquist.
0: What's your name? My name's Darcy Lynn.
1: Okay, and Darcy, who's that?
2: My name's Petunia. It talks. <laughs> is it a bunny? Yes. Uh-huh.
0: Is that a real bunny?
3: <laughs> oh, we're gonna find out. <laughs> okay. And Darcy, why did you both decide to enter the show?
2: Well, it was one of my big dreams. Um, but also, I would really like to keep uh, ventriloquism alive because it's not common, you know? So,
0: <laughs> well, listen, Doug, Okay, stop it there the for a second.
1: Again, for those case. at home, uh, give them the YouTube. Uh, go to YouTube, and what do you plug in?
0: I put in uh, Darcy Lynn Farmer. Okay,
1: D-A-R-C-I and F-A-R-M-E-R. Right, and, and I, spelled Darcy it, Farmer. I, s- I
0: spelled it wrong, and I still got it.
1: because <laughs> Because... Computers are, more, are getting to become more intelligent than exactly. we are. So let's just you be honest about it. Right. It knows what we want. He
2: must have meant.
1: <laughs> uh, you can watch this kid because this kid is a physiologically brilliant ventriloquist. She not only has a really clever act, but you don't see her lips move. Man, that's tricky. Now think about that. There are ventriloquists who can get away with moving their lips a little bit. Yeah. But she doesn't. She's really good at it. So let's just hear. She does that. She, and her voice is amazing.
2: <clears throat> Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready to hit it. What
1: happened to the audio there? I, I don't know. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, you can't. It, what happened to the video? The audio. Get it off. It's. Uh, let me
0: see if I can find another one.
1: Yeah, find another one. The, the audio went bad. Because she's got a great voice, and the dummy's got a great voice. <laughs> So don't, we'll try to get don't that. Don't
2: most of us have some kind of dummy that rides with us in the car that we talk to sometimes? Or am I alone in that?
1: Oh, you're alone. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm, I'm sure we all have friends that we talk to imaginary friends.
2: Right, with, with different accents from our own.
1: All right, here's a. She's, this is, she's doing a different gig. This is a different gig. That's not America's Got Talent. I yeah. wanted her singing. I don't know why the, the sound sounds terrible. Yeah. Uh, something happened to our computer. All right. Too bad. All right. See if you can fix that up. Meanwhile, uh, she was the big hit of the uh, International Dummy Convention. (laughs) Now, that got me thinking about Paul Winchell because I open up the show by making a statement that I believe he excelled at two different professions that couldn't be more diametrically apart. Okay. Obviously, one was he was a TV ventriloquist and a very fine entertainer and a very successful uh, TV talent as a ventriloquist, but he also had medical training and became the first person to build and patent a mechanical artificial heart. Wow, I was gonna say grief counselor would be the opposite (laughs) of uh, a ventriloquist,
2: but but he he topped me.
1: (laughs) But there's a great thought, a psychiatrist ventriloquist, so that when you came in, you didn't talk to the psychiatrist, you talked to the dummy. Right.
2: That might be very therapeutic. It, it, it could be, especially for like a kid who is resistant or something. Yeah, you might to be therapy. more open to talking to the dummy about yeah, your deep problems. Yeah, because the dummy is like, "Hey, ignore him. Talk to me." Well, well, I don't want to talk. Oh, come on. You know, we'll, we, I, we'll pretend he's not here.
1: <laughs> I,
0: I met Kermit the Frog, and I and I and I got to talk to him. Where was this? This was at the uh, Muppet uh, Mansion in New York City. There's a Muppet <laughs> Mansion in New York City. And this was I, a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I was there. Yeah. And there's the uh, the person holding Kermit, and he's and Kermit's talking to you, and the guy's mouth is moving, but you don't really look at him at all. You talk to Kermit. It's like you, the other guy isn't there, mm-hmm. and it's brilliant. So
1: ventriloquists can get away with moving their lips. Yeah, this young girl doesn't move her lips. Right. And Paul Witchell didn't move his lips. No, he was a brilliant ventriloquist, and he invented the first artificial heart. <laughs> Holy cow! Too amazing. <laughs> Now, Robert Klein, the great comedian, did a routine on this thinking about, talk about a guy who could be the best practical joker in the world. Imagine Paul Winchell at the hospital, you know, where he was (laughs) advising (laughs) the doctors on the mechanical heart, having the heart talk. (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah. That could scare somebody, right? Especially uh, if they're semi-awake. Mr. Johnson, your heart transplant was very successful. It certainly was. (laughs) (laughs) But it's dark in here. Wait a minute, my heart's talking to me. (laughs) So um, think about that. I I was trying to come up with an example of somebody who excelled at two diametrically opposed professions. Hmm. And the one thought I came up with, but I don't know that he excelled at the other one. You would know. Wallace Stevens, one of the great American poets of all time, correct? Was in the insurance industry. He was was a full-time insurance agent. I'm not sure he was great at that. But I don't know that he excelled at it. That's how he made his living so that he could write poetry. But he was a world-renowned poet
2: and T S Eliot worked in something like that too he was a banker and kafka was in business for a while which is truly crazy that's really weird <laughs> <laughs> cuz he just wanted to lock himself in a back room and write but they, but writers have sometimes had to have um a but they, they day didn't gigs. necessarily excel at
1: a, the profession right. it was a way of making money right but uh, yeah. i can't think of anyone who could beat being a successful tv ventriloquist <laughs> And developing a you know a medical marvel—it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive, right? Um, let's see if we can read a little bit more about Paul Winchell here. Uh, he was born Paul Wilchitsky mm. in 1922. His father was a tailor. His grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Russian Poland and Austria Hungary. His initial ambition was to become a doctor, but the Depression wiped out any chance of his family's ability to afford medical tuition. At age 13, he got polio, and while recovering, he came upon a magazine advertisement offering a ventriloquism kit for 10 cents. (laughs) Now, I have a ventriloquism kit story that's very, very sad. (laughs) From a comic Uh, book? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, (laughs) we'll tell our sad stories here in a moment. Back at school, he asked his art teacher— um, if he could receive class credit for creating a ventriloquist dummy. Um, the teacher was agreeable. So his creation, Jerry Mahoney, um, he went back to reading magazines, gathering jokes, putting together a comedy routine, and took him to the Major Bows Amateur Hour in 1938. That was the original America's Got right, Talent. Right. He won first prize. Um. He got a touring offer playing theaters with the Major Bows Review, and a band leader saw the young Winchell on tour and made him an offer of employment. He accepted and became a professional at age 14. Wow. His best-known dummies were Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith, it says here. I thought it was Smith. 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 Mahoney was carved by Chicago-based figure maker Frank Marshall. Um, let's see... The television versions of Jerry and Knucklehead um, became very popular. I started watching them in the mid-50s. His first show as a ventriloquist was on radio in 1943. He was overshadowed by Edgar Bergen, Mm. uh, whose daughter was Candace Bergen, by the way. Who's returning to her
2: show. Mm. (laughs) All these years later. In
1: 1948, Winchell was featured on an NBC uh, early TV show. During the 50s, here it was, he hosted the children's Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney show. That's what I watched. Uh-huh. Um, the morning show, Saturday morning show, is sponsored by Tootsie Roll. And Winchell wrote the theme song.
2: Hmm.
1: <laughs> so think about so this. World-class ventriloquist, on TV, wrote the theme song and developed an artificial heart. Um, let's see. Friends, friends, friends. In October of 1956, he moved to ABC hosting Circus Time. Um, in 1968, uh, he did roles for animated television series, including um, a lot of Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters. Hmm. Um He did Scooby-Doo. So he was active right through the 80s um, as a voice, as a great voice. Um, And when did he
2: get the medical training to make the heart? I don't know.
1: (laughs) You'd think that would be in the bio. (laughs) Uh, There's not a lot in the bio about developing the heart. It's mostly (laughs) about doing the
2: ventriloquist work. (laughs) You sure it's not another guy with the same name? (laughs) Winchell was
1: a pre-med student at Columbia Ah, University, graduated from the Acupuncture Research College of Los Angeles in 1974, and Mm. became an acupuncturist. Wow. This guy, wait a minute, he also worked as a medical hypnotist. (laughs) This is getting bizarre. He had it all going. Talk about a renaissance, man. Yeah. (laughs) TV star, expert ventriloquist develop a mechanical heart and become a medical hypnotist and a licensed acupuncturist. He developed over 30 patents
2: in his lifetime. (laughs) This guy could not stop being creative.
1: Yeah. (laughs) By the way, you know who assisted him in developing the artificial heart? Henry Heimlich, inventor of the Heimlich (laughs) Manoeuvre. By the way, I'd like to see a video (laughs) of them doing the Heimlich Maneuver on Knucklehead Smith. (laughs) That's
0: (laughs) it. That's that's where they practice. Excuse
2: me, your dummy's choking, sir. (laughs) The weird thing about dummies to me is their eyes. Their eyes are always really big and they don't blink. And I think that's what gives them the demented Mm. look. Because their eyes are bulging. I noticed that in the pictures uh, Uh uh, from the ventriloquist's convention. And maybe why I never particularly liked them. They had these weird all-American faces often. They had like right. um, those uh, little truncated noses and the high cheekbones and then those big weird eyes staring who, who at you. Is th- who
1: is the, the American icon of that kid, that Midwestern clean-cut kid? Uh, There's a name, um, Al- like an, mm. uh, uh, Horatio Alger, uh, the type. Mm. Anyway. Don't know. Um, All-American boy. Well, we know that Alfred E. Newman, Uh that face Yeah, he has some of that face. He has that because he was taken from a photo of a kid who was used for a dental uh, ad, Mm. that all-American kind of look, yeah.
0: Right,
2: that pug nose. Do
1: you remember the simplest uh, ventriloquist, the Senor Wences?
0: (laughs) Senor Wences was (laughs) bad. Just drew a little picture on his hand. The most
1: talented ventriloquist of all time (laughs) may have been a woman, Shari Lewis. Oh, yeah. Who had a very successful career as as a... um, yeah, on TV, uh, sock uh, sock puppet. But she was a brilliant Damn. ventriloquist, and her 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 dummies were they were sock puppets. Her puppets were um, Oliver, lamp chop, yes, yeah. and
3: Oliver was a dragon, right? What was that? Wrong? Oliver, a
1: <laughs> uh, 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 wiki, um, wiki Shari Lewis, S H A R I, wiki <laughs> Shari Lewis. I always wanted to say that. Um, <laughs>
2: We've got to get you on a Lamb chop and who was the
1: other one? Mashed potato? Uh, No, it wasn't food related. Give me Sherry Lewis. It's bothering me now. I should know that. (laughs) Um. She was very talented. Lamb chop and there's a photo of of the two of them right there. Oh, yes. It was that uh, Charlie horse. Charlie horse. Right. Lamb chop and Charlie horse. Yeah. Charlie great! Brown. I love when you name your puppet after a muscle spasm. <laughs>
3: well, the best was Pookie with Soupy Sales.
1: <laughs> oh, he was great! Right, I love Soupy. Sales. <laughs> oh, Soupy was great.
3: He was, no yeah. doubt.
1: Not a ventriloquist, but no, no. <laughs> okay. Well, in a way, isn't playing a saxophone like being a ventriloquist? You're making a you're making an instrument <laughs> <be>. you're making <laughs> an be. instrument talk.
3: I feel, well, I'll have to get a, a, a Newman face for it. <laughs> no,
1: but uh, yeah, no, we're coming nice. up to our second break. <laughs> And what have we covered here so far? Okay, we are a warlike and obese culture, but we love our ventriloquist dummies.
2: And we don't really think that the Yankees should injure any Red Sox players just to get themselves heated up.
1: Find another way to get motivated. Come on. We didn't even get to military budget, um.
2: (laughs) (laughs) and apparently neither did the New York Times. And according to that article, uh, nobody is covering the fact that this incredibly huge budget passed in the House of Representatives for the military.
1: Well, we're going to get to it when we come back. (laughs)